Lord, we just finished worshiping you, and tonight we are offering this topic because it's a manner of knowing more about who you are and worshiping you as you really are. Lord, we've asked for your divine intervention these last few weeks because your triune nature is something that is so difficult for us to comprehend. And Lord, I pray, though, in faith that you would reveal yourself to us supernaturally in this room. Your spirit dwells here now. You promise us that you are with us when we are together. And Lord, we not only invoke that promise, but we're glad and excited that you're part of this group, that you're part of the teaching, that you are the one, Lord, who speaks and moves in our group. Tonight, that is especially true, Holy Spirit, because tonight we're focusing on you. And we pray that we might make tangible that's what that which is difficult for us to understand we pray tonight that you might open our minds and our hearts and speak to us directly spirit be our teacher tonight our topic is about you thank you lord for the way that you've moved these past few weeks because i feel like we have gained a greater understanding of you and lord tonight we wrap that up may you keep this in our minds and burn it there permanently so that we might always understand you lord as a triune god We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're wrapping up on the Trinity tonight. What I want to do real fast, as we usually do, to catch some people up. Go to the next slide, and I'll show you where we've been. Um, And of course, as always, you guys can pick up any of these on CD so we can catch up on some of the things. You know, we really started the first week with the big questions we always ask, like, why are we even spending time on a multi-week series on something like the Trinity? And I think most of us understood that if we're really going to understand who God is, who he really is, we have to know his true nature, not the nature we invent about him. It's difficult to understand the Trinity, so we break it down sometimes and we kind of don't do God justice for who he really is. We looked at Christians' misconceptions as well as what non-Christians think about the Trinity. And we kind of laid down that was the reason we're going through this series. In week two, we dove into the New Testament. We started looking at what the New Testament writers were writing about Jesus. My premise to you was always, if I can get you to two, I can get you to three, meaning in shorthand, most people who are troubled by a multipersonal God are troubled by that there's just more than one. So we started to analyze, can we go to two? Is Jesus God? And we looked at John's prologue. We looked at the brilliant wording that he used to explain to us that truth, that Jesus was God But in the same way, he used the Greek in a very specific way to remind us that God is not limited to Jesus. And there we began our basis. We looked at the verse in Colossians as well, where Paul makes it very clear that he believes that Jesus is the supreme God of the universe. In week three, we dove even deeper into the New Testament. And we began to understand that there are people who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. We kind of debunked that by showing that Jesus himself claimed to be God. We looked at the New Testament writers themselves, again, more evidence that they claimed that he was God. So that by the time we were done with week three, there was no doubt that you can't read the New Testament. It makes no sense, actually, without an understanding of a multipersonal God, at least that Jesus was God. And that was our New Testament understanding. Last week, if you go to the next slide, we kind of went a step further. And started looking and saying, fine, let's say the New Testament contains many, many references to the Trinity. And actually can't be really read to make sense without an understanding of a triune God. What about the Old Testament? If you look at the bottom of the slide, we had this kind of premise that we threw up. That if God really inspired the Old Testament, if the scriptures of the word of God are supposed to be true... And if God is triune, then we would expect to find evidence throughout the Old Testament of God's triune nature. That it shouldn't just come as a surprise in the New Testament. It should be there all along. And last week, that's what, exactly what we did. We went through a careful analysis looking for evidence of God's triune nature. And we found it in numerous places throughout the Old Testament. Okay? To catch some of you up, what we were really looking for was places where even God, in describing himself as one, was really using specific Hebrew words that implied more than just one 
in the oneness. And what we meant was there were verbs used in Hebrew that specifically described God as a multi-personal God. It's surprising to a lot of us. I think people kind of commented after last week, like, I didn't know that was there. That even in the Shema, hear, O Israel, that the Lord your God is one, that the word he's using to describe one is very specific to imply that it could mean more than just one. The way that somebody would say the people together were one, that their hearts were one. And we looked at numerous verses over and over where this word was being used to describe God in a way that showed that he was trying to express truth throughout. Now the question I got after last week was, did the people writing down the scriptures really understand what they were writing when they used these verbs? And I think we left it off last week saying, I don't know. The way that one theologian put it is, the Old Testament, if you look at this room, picture this room around you, imagine it with the lights off for a second. That all of the wonders of God were already in the room, they just couldn't see them because it was dimly lit. So if somebody illuminated the room, it isn't like they added things, it's just that you didn't see them all when you first walked in. And that was kind of the way that one theologian described how the Old Testament was written, is all of the wonders of God, including his triune nature, there's evidence of it throughout the whole Old Testament. But the lights were on very dimly. And maybe people didn't quite understand or see all of that was there until the light of the New Testament comes in and we see it in a different light. But for me, as we talked about last week, from an evidentiary standpoint, analyzing the evidence and sufficiency of evidence, almost like in a courtroom, it would disturb me if you open up the Old Testament and there was no evidence of the Trinity. And that's why it was so important last week that we walk through it from an evidentiary standpoint to say, I'm not saying we're going to find a verse in the Psalms that says, oh, you triune God, but I wanted to see evidence in the language, in the, in the words that were chosen. And I think last week, if any of the CDs that you get out of this series, last week's probably going to be the most important because it's the one that was the most surprising to most Christians, that there is so much evidence. All right, next slide. So where are we tonight? Back to our working definition of the Trinity. Here it is one more time. Within one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's my crude rule of thumb, trying to explain. If I can get you to two, we can get to three. Tonight, we finally get to three. Tonight, we're actually going to look at the Holy Spirit and look at the person of the Holy Spirit, which we have not really done so far. So far, our whole task has been just getting from God the Father to Jesus. And if we can get there, then, okay, we're beyond a one-person God. Now we're all comfortable with a multi-person God. Tonight, we actually fulfill the whole picture by adding the Holy Spirit. Let's go to the next slide and look at some issues about the Holy Spirit that I think are facing the church. Rarely. Do we teach or preach about the Holy Spirit? I don't know if the last time any of you remember a sermon that somebody preached just about the Holy Spirit, doing teaching just on the Holy Spirit. Here's a place where I think the church lacks a little bit because it's a difficult subject for people. Many Christians are pretty uncomfortable talking about the Holy Spirit. If they are talking about the Holy Spirit, as you'll see in point number three, it's usually debating about the gifts of the Spirit. Are they appropriate? Are they not appropriate? That's when we talk about the Spirit. Somebody goes, oh, you go to that church, they uh, favor the Holy Spirit a little too much over there. They're out there in the aisles like wiggling and dancing around. That seems to be the only time we talk about the Holy Spirit. Oh, of course, right before you go out on stage, if you're a worship team or if you're a pastor or you're praying or something, you go, oh, now we need the Holy Spirit, Lord. What you're really saying is like, you know, wake up the people in the congregation and get them moving a little bit. That's what we need the Holy Spirit for. The Holy Spirit's like a big usher at church. He's like walking around like poking people, you know, like, hey, get your hands up in the air when you're worshiping. What are you doing there with your hands by your side? That's what the Holy Spirit is. Okay? That's how we invoke the Holy Spirit normally. But here's some reasons for it. The Holy Spirit is often kind of mysterious to us. We're not really even sure who, and some Christians would say, or what the Holy Spirit is. 
There's also confusion sometimes between God's Spirit with a little s and the Holy Spirit. Like, is the Holy Spirit really like a separate part? Or is it just when God is acting as spirit? Like, I'm confused. And a lot of Christians will confuse these two. And then you have, of course, people who just outright deny the existence of the Holy Spirit. We're going to tackle that again a little bit tonight. But there really isn't a Holy Spirit at all. It's just God when he's in the spirit form. That's the Holy Spirit. And that's often led to a lot of cults like Jehovah's Witness and others who deny even the Trinity. So we need to address all these issues in fairness tonight. We'll do it fast. Okay. We're going to cover the whole Holy Spirit in 20 minutes. Let's analyze first why it is that the Holy Spirit seems so mysterious to us. Okay? I think, and I'll posit, I'm not alone in thinking this because I stole this from theologians who think this, that the Holy Spirit intentionally kind of plays a background role. That the Holy Spirit is not so upfront in Scripture is not so upfront even in teaching. And remember, the Holy Spirit really is the one that's directing teaching and preaching and supposed to be the one who's speaking through people if they allow him. But he's kind of in a background role. Here's some reasons why. I think it's the Holy Spirit's desire to point people to Christ. I think it's the Holy Spirit's desire to point them to God. I think the Holy Spirit's role as a person of God is literally to point the way to salvation. And to do that, you've got to focus on the person of God who's the redemptive one, which is the Son, which is Jesus. So a lot of people posit the idea that the reason the Holy Spirit's kind of in the background is not just because we as Christians are uncomfortable dealing with the subject of the Holy Spirit or don't know that much about it, but it's literally because by design the Holy Spirit is pointing to Jesus. I think the Holy Spirit is moving in the way that he does, both with Christians and non-Christians, constantly keeping their proper focus on Christ. And that's like the, the evidence of, of the Holy Spirit's work can sometimes be that focus on Christ, which by its definition would make the Holy Spirit a little bit more invisible if he's doing his job right. The Holy Spirit actually has a role now in the world to actually kind of move and direct people to act as an advocate, to witness, to, to direct sometimes the traffic, if you will, of what God's people are doing, to speak through people. Okay. I mean, the question here is when he's leading us to God because we by ourselves are filled with sin, but Christ was sinless in nature. So why was the Spirit, I mean, I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what I think, regardless of how you end it. It's hard to draw analogies from the relationship of Christ and the Father and the Spirit directly to how our relationship is because they have an intimate relationship that existed eternally before we were ever created that exists on its own. So when we see Jesus and the Father interacting, when we see Jesus and the Spirit interacting, or any one of them, or all three of them, it may be instructive, but I don't know. There may be rules about the way they interact that has nothing to do with us because they have an independent relationship that's more intimate than anything we could ever imagine to have three personages in one God. Okay, look at, look at this point. The role of focusing others on the Father and the Son is likely the reason the Spirit does not appear in Scripture as often as the other persons. You'll also see in a moment that I believe that the reason the Holy Spirit doesn't appear in Scripture so much is because he wasn't sent into the world till the very end, practically, of the Bible. So we'll, we'll look at that in a second. Okay? But here's the point I want to make absolutely clear at the bottom of the slide. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. Now, you could say a she or a he, but it's not an it. I'm going to make the point that it's a person, not a thing. Okay? And the reason that that's really important that we get straight, that it's a person and not a thing, is because multiple heresies and multiple cults identify the spirit as a thing, like the shadow of God, the spirit of God, but not really a separate person of God. Okay? And this is the part where you've got to 
stretch your mind a little bit with me. Okay? Because I promised at the end it was going to be it was going to make your head hurt a little bit. But the Holy Spirit is a person. You're going to see that Scripture refers to the Spirit as a he in many instances, at least in English. Okay? Here's my summary of it. Go to the next slide, Anthony. We affirm that the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons found within one being that's God. All right? I know we still have to come back and wrestle with that. I know, Monique, you're having a, an issue with it already. But he's one of three persons in one being. Remember that our definition, again, is that within one being that's God, there exists three co-equal and co-eternal persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? The persons of the Father and the Son have personal characteristics. They talk, they walk, they heal, they do stuff. So the question is, if the Holy Spirit really is a person, in Scripture, could we establish for somebody that the Holy Spirit has personal characteristics the same way? Okay? Why am I throwing this up on this? Because a lot of people say, the Holy Spirit is just a spirit, or it's, a, it's, a, it's an it, or it's just God sending his spirit or something like that. What I'm trying to show you is that the Holy Spirit really is a person that acts, talks, does stuff in the scriptures. Let's look at the verses right now so you guys will dive right into them. Don't let me speak. Let the verses speak. It might clarify. Go to the next slide. Here's some verses I'll read them to you. It's kind of small on the screen. Acts 13.2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and that's why we call him the Holy Spirit, because he's identified as such in Scripture. Straight from the words. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Notice the verb there. The Holy Spirit spoke. There's identifying a personal trait, something that a person needs to do. All right? Same thing in Acts 10, 19, and 20. When Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. The Spirit is testifying in a way and speaking in a way and instructing in a way, indicating that the Spirit is acting and the Spirit is a person. Acts 8.29, the Spirit said to Philip, Get up and join this chariot. Acts 21.11, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands. This is just a person, by the way, who's coming to prophesy to Paul. And the prophet comes in, took Paul's belt, bound his own feet, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Yeah. Can't you just replace the Holy Spirit and the Spirit with the Lord? You can, which is one of the indications that it must be at least, if you're going to make the distinction that he is a person, which we're still proving, that once you make the, the, the claim that he is a person, that you're equating him with God. So I know what you're saying, which is that maybe it's just a synonym for God, right? Okay, good point. I like that you brought that up because that was one of the things I was hoping somebody would catch. There's something else on the screen that somebody should catch. Anybody else see something peculiar of all the verses that are on the screen? They're all in Acts. So we're citing one book over and over and over for the proposition, which normally should be like, hey, that should be troublesome from an evidentiary standpoint for all of you who are thinking critically. Like, why are all the statements from one book? And yes, you could replace them easily with God or Lord and put them in there. Hang on to that, because I'm going to use those two pieces in a second. Go to the next slide. Let's just look at a couple. Here's a couple that are not from Acts, but because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the spirit speaks not only openly in prophecy, but the spirit also speaks within our hearts and can speak to our hearts and create a longing or a cry in our hearts. Romans 8, 26 and 27. In the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I'm just trying to show these verses that these are action verses of a person who would be doing these things. And as Andrew pointed out, you could replace most of them with God and they would still make sense, except the writer is 
didn't do that? Because you have to take that the person who is writing these words was inspired to use certain words. Otherwise, most, I would say most, of the arguments that we construct theologically would fall, would fall down immediately. I think that the real reason people look so carefully at the spear is because they want to know, is he really a separate part of God, or is he just God's essence, for, for lack of a better word, or God's spirit with a little s, kind of. And, and the answer is, I mean, I'll give you the ending right now, the answer is, he is a different person. And that's the whole idea of why it's a trinity, okay? But give me just a few seconds to make some comments on this, and maybe you'll struggle less. Can you go back one slide? Look at the very one at the bottom, this one about Paul. This is a very significant verse in Paul's life because the, they're sitting around wondering where Paul should go next, and he thinks he should go to Jerusalem. And a man comes in and takes Paul's belt and ties it around his hands and said, the man who wears this belt, this is what's going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. And all the other people sitting around are begging Paul, don't go, don't go. And Paul's saying, if this is the Lord's will for me, it's going to be done. But in this verse, it's the Holy Spirit that speaks, okay? This is a prophecy. Remember that only, true prophecy only comes from God. So this is a divine attribute of the Holy Spirit identifying for us that the Holy Spirit is God, is part of the one being God, because it has the power to make prophecy and to speak prophecy, not obviously through a prophet, but the prophet comes bearing the words of God. That's observation number one. Now, Andrew made a really good observation, which is number two. I'm going to come back to it and just give you number three first. They're all in the book of Acts. A lot of these statements are in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit is seen as a person. You could say, that's kind of weak evidence. They're all in like one book. Of course, we do have evidence throughout the entire New Testament. I'm just not going to cite them all. But I intentionally chose the one in Acts to kind of make a point. Why? do we suddenly find the Holy Spirit so active in the book of Acts? Yeah. It, it should make sense. Now go forward two slides, Anthony, to look at some of these observations, okay? First of all, it makes sense that we should start hearing about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts because that's when the Holy Spirit is supposed to come forward. Jesus said, this is Jesus in the Gospel of John, talking about what's about to happen. And notice I underline the number of times that he's referred to as he. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. And he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Clearly the he's talking about is a person of God. Now I'm still going to come back to whether we can replace that with just the Lord. But Jesus is telling us, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. So in the very next book of the Bible, it should be no surprise that suddenly that person shows up. As we know the Holy Spirit does at Pentecost... But it doesn't just show up in like a little magic act where everybody just starts speaking different languages and it's over. From that point forward, the history that we have, because everything else after that is like letters, the history of the church that we have in the book of Acts, suddenly everywhere we look, the Holy Spirit is speaking. Because what Jesus said has come true. The Holy Spirit is now in the world. And now the Holy Spirit is speaking. That good. So there's no Holy Spirit before Jesus then? The Holy Spirit definitely existed the whole time, but he was not active and working in the world, at least, at least to the degree he is now. We have evidence, as we looked last week, that he was active in doing parts, like he was active in creation, he was active at different parts in, in history, he showed up at the baptism of... There's like different elements where you can see the Holy Spirit, okay? But his real work, if you will, is now... Because Jesus has said, I'm sending you the helper. I'm leaving. The helper will be with you. Angela. I have a problem, but I would argue that in the Greek, the he is neuter, that noun neuter, and in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a feminine word. So I, but I, neuter not meaning inanimate object, right? No, but definitely not he. Right, okay. okay. 
Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing the heinous in the English because I want to make sure that it's not a inanimate neutral like a like that post. Well, you say she will guide you into the truth. Okay. You want me to Anthony, could you put an S in front of every he on that screen? I'm not arguing for the masculinity of the spirit, by the way. I mean, let me make that clear. I'm arguing just that it's not an inanimate object and it's not the spirit. Here we go. Thank you. There you go. And shiz own. The new translation, new English translation is shiz own initiative. All right. Yeah, well, you know, what the heck. I would all be fired already. All right. Let's go back to Andrew's point number two. We've already covered a couple of points that it, all these come from Acts, which we would expect. The, the Holy Spirit is suddenly working. But here's something that I would observe. The book of Acts was written by Luke. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. We know how Luke writes Greek. We know how he writes the Lord and God. So if a guy who's writing basically one book in just two parts, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, intentionally goes out of his way to start using words like Holy Spirit, Spirit, Spirit says, Holy Spirit does this, that's good evidence to me that he was being intentional in how he chose his language. That when in the book of Luke we, hear, we use words like Father, God, Lord, he's not using Holy Spirit. He's doing it in the book of Acts because now there's a reason. So if Luke or any of the Gospels and Acts had been totally written by different people, that argument might have merit with some of the critics. They might say like, well, that's just the word that the person who wrote the book of Acts used. It's like, actually, we know what words the person who wrote the book of Acts would have used. We know his Greek very well. And actually, it was very good Greek. He didn't, Luke's Greek was excellent. And it wasn't going to be the kind of thing where he just suddenly in the new book starts writing a different way. It's actually written as almost one huge letter to one person. And we know what he would say. So to me, looking at evidence, that's enough. I can say that pretty much you know that he was intentional at a minimum. And of course, as believing Christians, we know that the Bible was inspired by God. So that means that intentionality was God breathed and God directed that I want you to express the truth about me in the following ways using that excellent Greek that only you know because you really are dealing with three different persons God the Father Jesus the Son that's going on in the Gospel of Luke get to the book of Acts we have the introduction of a third person and I want you to identify him she me whatever correctly that's the evidence that we worship a God who's beyond our understanding beyond time, beyond restriction, and not a God of our own invention. I don't think people would make this up. Or, or if they could, they would probably like go, let's take that part out. If we're going to take this to the ends of the earth, like if you're sitting around in some place in Jerusalem, like talking about how you got to spread this to the rest of the world, like you go, hey, I took this to like a focus group, and that part about the three and one, it's not playing very good. Most of the people are not getting it. I'm thinking we should pull that out. It might go further. Or we just come right out and just say there's three different ones. And you can pick which one you want. That way, like, everybody can have a flavor. We might even throw a woman in there. You know what the heck? I think that he is beyond our understanding to a degree that we're just beginning to grapple with. And that's the reason I've pressed forward, even though I was so tempted to just go, forget it. I don't, I don't think I could do it justice. I mean, look at how we're struggling tonight. Like, I don't think I could make this go as easily as another topic. But you know what? The reason we're pressing forward is because God does want you to know who he is fully. And I'll end on why that's important. Quick thing on the next slide, by the way. People always ask this about the Holy Spirit. Go to the next slide if you can, Anthony. So we might as well just cover it real fast. I've heard a number of people ask this question, like, what exactly is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Where does it come from? Um, one more indication that the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father and the Son is just the concept that there is something called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. 
Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Now, putting aside for a moment the, the consequences of that verse, just notice that Jesus is speaking and saying, you can blaspheme against me. You can speak against me. In fact, you're going to crucify me. He's almost prophesying that it's going to get pretty bad for him. You could put me on trial, in other words, and you could find me to be a blasphemer for claiming that I'm God, and I'll forgive you. You could be a psalmist screaming at God, and he'll forgive you. In fact, he'll publish your stuff. Maybe that's what you guys should do as a band. You guys should just go out there and start screaming at God, and like, maybe he'll publish your stuff. Your songs will go on for thousands of years. People will be like rewriting them and writing them and putting them to different melodies. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it's a different story. There is an example of where like you can't interchange God in there. You can't just put the Father because it wouldn't make sense. There'd be a million contradictions if you actually substituted Holy Spirit with either Jesus or God or Father. Okay? It's very specific to the Holy Spirit. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I think the consensus is that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is attributing to the Holy Spirit things that are demonic or of the devil. That's the consensus view. You call the acts and works of the Holy Spirit that of the devil, then you've committed the unforgivable sin. I'm just trying to think of a good example. Does anybody have a good example of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? The only person I've ever known that has ever committed the sin to my knowledge was Derek Moen. <laughs> you know, because he was giving a talk about the Holy Spirit being the advocate, and he kept referring to him as the adversary over and over, and he just kept saying it over and over. Like He's like, and we have the Holy Spirit who is our adversary. And I was like, we did it. He actually, like one person in the history of man has actually done it. And then he did it again and again and again. I was like, oh, like seven times unforgivable. Oh, oh. And he didn't even realize it. I was like, oh my God, yeah. Um, I... I believe that the Holy Spirit, if, if it's the one that, going back to the beginning of the message, how you said, he's the one that draws people to Christ, um, then the Holy Spirit is actually able to speak to people who aren't saved, who's actually able to touch their hearts and go, hey, come to me. Um, so if you reject that and you leave that, I think that even if, even if you are a Christian and you choose to push the Holy Spirit away and leave, directly believe, then isn't that blasphemy because you're going to stop? I, I think you guys, just to put this kind of to a, to a close, we're not talking about situations where people reject Jesus and then change their mind. We're not even talking about the rejection of Christ. He's making it clear, it's not about me. I'm telling you, there's a sin against the Holy Spirit that if you commit, it won't be forgiven. I'm not going to explain to you what it is exactly because there's almost no good example that I found in any of the works except everybody just seems to agree to this consensus view that if you somehow attribute Satan's work to the Holy Spirit or vice versa, you know, not accidentally, but you're intending to literally confuse the two that you've committed this sin, that's the best I can offer you. I don't even know of a great example. I see Jesus here specifically singling out one person within the Trinity that you cannot do something to. And he's distinguishing it against himself. So if it weren't for his specific words, I'd probably tend to agree. It'd be like nice to think of it. I'm not saying they don't all feel the same things. Obviously, the Spirit hears what the Father says and repeats it and speaks. What I'm saying is that Jesus himself, speaking about a relationship we don't understand, made a distinction that I'm not even sure we understand, that you can do about anything you want to me, but if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it won't be forgiven. You know, this is a very specific strand that Jesus points out. Why am I bringing it up? Because 10 people have asked me about it in the past, like, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I've heard people use it incorrectly. And also, it proves that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are distinct. All right, I'm going to move quickly through this. You can also insult and grieve the Spirit. Okay, it's not the same as blasphemy against the Spirit, but again, it shows that there are verses that describe the Spirit. Okay. Let me just give you those verses. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Matthew 12, 31 and 32. Insulting the Spirit, Hebrews 10, 29, a very important verse that we looked at when we were talking about intentional sin, that you literally are insulting the Spirit and grieving the Spirit, which Ryan likes to cite a whole bunch of times, Ephesians 4, 30. Okay? Let's, let's talk about the Trinity as a whole again. Let's go into that discussion. First, 
one of the purposes of even doing this talk on the Trinity was so that you could better express the Trinity to people. I would highly encourage that you guys go through the CDs on this series because we've done a lot of work to get to where we are tonight. Okay? Analyzing where the verses come from the New Testament because some people say there are no verses. Especially if you encounter Jehovah's Witnesses or non-Trinitarian sects and cults of Christianity. There are no verses. Yes, there are. Some people say, well, it's a big surprise it wasn't in the Old Testament. I think we unpacked that last week, and it's a, it's a really good discussion to listen to. Well, it's just really God's spirit, and I've tried to show today that, no, there's really a separate, distinct person called the Holy Spirit. Going back to the Trinity, here's some critics. We'll throw up some more things in your face. Jehovah's Witness like this verse very much. They go, look, the whole doctrine of the Trinity is against the Bible. Read this verse. I and the Father are one, spoken by Jesus. He's saying they're one. He's saying they're the same. So there can't be a trinity or, a, or anything, even a duality or whatever you would call it, if there were just two of them, because he himself admitted that he and the Father were one and the same. But that's not really what he was saying. Again, you could take almost any verse out of context. This one usually is, so you have to watch very carefully when a person knocking at your door is going to use this to show you that there is no trinity. Here's the context of the verse. It says, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is Jesus speaking. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. And then he goes on to say the verse, I and the Father are one. He's already distinguishing between what the Father does and what the Son does. The Father gives them to me. No one can take them away from the Father. I'm the one who will save them. There's a distinction going on. And then, again, the fact that we have the language inspired by God always is the last word. Because we're reading it again in English, and I appreciate those people who read in other languages and can actually look at the original text. Because when you do, you discover that the word that Jesus uses, go to the next slide, is this one. If you translate it literally, when Jesus says, I and the Father, one, he actually says, I and the Father, we are one. A little surprise in the text for the Jehovah's Witnesses are reading their English Bible. Their English, they have, a, they have a different version of the Bible. They call it the New World Translation. Okay? The plural form of the verb is used to say, to basically make it state, if you read it literally, I and the Father, we are one. The same kind of footprints that we found all through the Old Testament of the way that God intentionally inspired verbs that implied a multi-personal oneness, we see that John, again, is using the precise language. And Jesus' words are recorded in such a way where he says, I and the Father, we are one. Okay, next slide. Here's another thing you'll hear all the time as a Christian for the rest of your life. The doctrine of the Trinity was invented after the Bible was written. So... When was the doctrine actually revealed? If someone says to you, well, show me where the Trinity is. I know most of you are going to go to the baptism of Christ. There, see all three of them hanging out? All right. The correct answer is, yes, there's evidence of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Yes, there is clear doctrine of the Trinity throughout the New Testament, without which it doesn't make sense. But the real answer for us as Christians is, the Trinity was revealed fully to us when God revealed himself to us fully between the Old and New Testament, basically when Jesus enters the world. And this is the time when we would expect the Trinity to be revealed. Throughout the Old Testament, God is communicating to certain key people, and they deliver the message of the Lord to all of the people. And then one day, God comes down to earth. Wouldn't that be the moment that we would most expect to discover the most about God? is when he's finally dwelling in our midst, when he himself finally is starting to teach us about who he is. Christ is a man, God-man, fully God, fully divine, teaching about the nature of the Father, teaching about the helper that's yet to come, 
teaching about his own nature and his own work in redemption. Imagine the disciples, like they're fully aware of the Trinity. That's probably why we don't see like this announcement of the Trinity, like now hear this, here's the doctrine of the Trinity, let me write it down for you. They were probably so used to it, it went without saying. They knew Jesus, the Son, personally. They were there on Pentecost and encountered the Holy Spirit personally. They knew God and worshipped the Father personally. To them, there's like no need to sit down in letters and go, hey, now let's tell you about this thing called the Trinity. Because it was the very essence of what they believed. It's one of the reasons I think it probably doesn't appear so clearly sometimes. And yet if you read the letters of Paul. If you read Acts, you're going to see over and over Holy Spirit, God, Jesus, all used interchangeably for different acts, different functions, different things that were going on. But they had no problem using those three interchangeably. Go therefore to the ends of the earth where Jesus is closing words on earth and preach my gospel and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, He's mentioning three. Has no problem saying baptize him in the name of the Holy Spirit because that's the same as baptizing the name of Jesus, the same as baptizing the name of God the Father. That would normally be blasphemy. We're probably so used to hearing that verse over and over to make us feel guilty about mission trips that we don't even understand the impact of, hey, go and baptize him in the name of three persons. How many times in the letters of Paul do we read, like, greetings to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Like, no problem whatsoever expressing three co-equal, co-eternal parts of God, giving all of them equal weight. Do something in the name of God, and they break it out into three persons. Yes, it's true that later on, councils and creeds and all these things kind of solidified our understanding of the Trinity, probably because there were so many heresies breaking out that they had to actually enunciate it correctly. I said from the very beginning of this series that knowing God fully means you've got to know everything about him and who he really is. Not creating an image of God that is easy for us to deal with. I talked many times about how Christians kind of are schizophrenic about God. They use different pieces of him when they need to. Jesus for salvation, God the Father for almighty acts and miracles and supernatural events and the Holy Spirit to convince others who we know that don't know Jesus just to somehow believe in him. We're talking about one God, though. Three persons, but one being. To worship God fully, we need to appreciate all of those different persons fully. I read up here, let anything less tempts us to create a false image of God, an idol that does not represent the true God. How do Christians do this? Well, we've already talked, some Christians overemphasize one part of God or another. Some people are all about the Spirit and ignore God and, in terms of the Father and the Son. Some people focus solely on just the Son and salvation and ignore worship of God the Father or the Holy Spirit. I think if I were to admit, probably in my life, I'm most tempted to exclude the Holy Spirit because I'm not really quite sure how I incorporate the Holy Spirit in my understanding of God. That's one of the reasons we went through tonight. I also told you the first week that analogies of God always fall short. Because God says, there is no one like me. I'm not what you would expect. I'm not anything you could understand. I'm unique. Okay, I'm going to ignore that for just a second and think of this analogy. <laughs> it's not really about God, it's about us. Our worship of God needs to be balanced on three legs of a stool almost. You can't take one out and expect it to stand. Understanding of him. So maybe in fairness to that rule I just enunciated, I'm not really making an analogy of God, I'm making an analogy of us and our understanding of him and our worship of him. It needs to be equal. Even a shorter leg is going to make for a very wobbly base. It needs to be a full understanding of all three persons. As I say that, I don't know how to deliver it to you. I don't know how it is that I say, okay, Lord, tonight as I pray to all three persons in one being, I understand how that interplay works.
but I'm comforted by God's own words that there's no one like me. And that also makes me want to worship and believe in God even more because I don't think people make this stuff up. That's not the way they're going to play if they're creating a world religion. They're not going to choose the doctrines that confound people as opposed to the ones that probably just invite them to come in. It's not like you say We don't need perfect knowledge of them, but I want to stay away from being lazy and saying that, you know what, it's too hard for me to understand the role of the Spirit or, or who the Spirit is, so I'm good with God, the Father, because he's in the Old Testament. I'm good with Jesus because he died on the cross, and just you know, give me two out of three, I'm okay. Because I really want to say that we, if we really are to strive to know God, which is really what primarily our purpose might be in this life, should not get lazy and say, this is hard for me to understand, I'm just not going to do it. I think we can say, I believe, help my unbelief. I know this much, can you get me a little further, Lord? Because we're talking about you. Supernaturally, you somehow could give me an understanding of who you are. And I agree, in the end, we're never going to fully know God. And when I say we need to fully know him, I mean, yeah, I put an asterisk next to that, like as much as humans can before they reach their limitation and just their mind blows up, you know? Because I think that's really where the subject ends up is in the end we just go, ah! So break it down into different roles, different persons. Christ clearly had a role to be our Redeemer. Christ clearly had a role to sacrifice himself. Did he himself freely choose it? The Gospels say, actually the word says yes. Jesus of his own choice chose to die for us. Was it his idea? The Bible also tells us that the Father was the one who orchestrated this plan. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit as a helper. Does that mean the Holy Spirit is inferior? No. It just means that they have a dynamic that they understand. That just as the Father sends the Son, the Son has sent the Spirit the Son speaks on behalf of the Father. Jesus says, I am the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. And our minds start to hurt. And it's okay. Because I think the place where I have to leave it for you is, it's okay. There's no way, no matter how deep this group goes, that we'll be able to fully, 100% understand this concept. What I've wanted you to do is work through it. One, to be able to articulate it correctly. That we're not talking about a person who jumps on the stage and one moment he's God the Father, then changes costumes, and now he's Jesus the Son, then changes again, and now he's like wearing this dove outfit and flying around the world as the Holy Spirit. There are three distinct persons in one God. Not three gods. That's one heresy. Not only a God by himself, solitary and absolute in every way, without any persons, that's another heresy. How we live in that tension is really what makes this difficult. Okay? But that's the correct way to articulate it. One being, three co-eternal persons. They've always been, and they are co-equal and co-eternal. So we've learned at least to articulate it correctly. Hopefully now you can respond to some things that people say about, I don't know where it is, I don't see that, I don't see where the doctrine is, I don't even think it's in the old, you can go back and follow all these verses and at least see that this is clearly documented all through scripture, including the Old Testament. And finally, that our correct understanding of God really requires that we hold it up and say, Lord, please help our unbelief, help our difficulty, help our, help our lack of knowledge. And get us as far as you can take human beings. Because we really truly desire to know who you are. Don't get lazy on me. Because the temptation is clear. The temptation is, you know what, I, it's too hard. I don't want to do it. I don't want to really know who God is. And I think the only person who wins in that case probably is Satan. Who's very happy that we not know God fully. Let's, uh, let's pray and give the Holy Spirit honor tonight for what we've talked about. Lord, there's often moments where I think it, you must be laughing at the way that we attempt to put meaning to who you are. 
There's so many things that you know in your infinite knowledge that we don't. And yet you created us to not only be curious, but you implanted us, Lord, as you said in your word, with the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts and cries out, Abba, Father. That you, Holy Spirit, specifically point us to the Father with the cries of our own heart, wanting us to know more about our Heavenly Father. Tonight, Lord, we've tried to learn more about you, Holy Spirit, and to honor your place within the one triune God. And I feel like we've done a poor job. I feel inadequate, Lord, and I confess that, that we are not able to properly articulate who you are. And as many verses as we look at, as many ways that we try, Lord, I feel like it just raises even more questions. And that's where our faith comes in, Lord. I thank you that our faith is not empty. It's not one based on blind belief. But Lord, that you have given us your word that is full of assurances of your triune nature. It's full of so many other assurances, Lord, that we know that your word is specifically designed to instruct and teach us. That every word, Lord, has meaning carefully chosen, instructive for a purpose. And Lord, tonight, as we open your word, I pray that as we leave here, it settles on our hearts. That something that was spoken here tonight, even if it wasn't intentional, but came from you, Holy Spirit, would grow quickly in our hearts and take root and become the thing that we base our firm foundation on. Lord, let it not be my words or my research or any of the things that I feebly offer because I'm not even qualified, Lord, to begin to describe your greatness, your holiness, or even your triune nature. Holy Spirit, this subject is yours. You teach us. Not just tonight, but in the coming weeks, months, years. Let our lifelong pursuit be to know you more fully. And we ask, Lord, in faith, supernaturally, Lord, if it requires a miracle, then do it, because the people gathered in this room truly want to know you and who you are, to be able to speak your name to others correctly, to be able to articulate you correctly, but more important, Lord, just so that we know, because we care and we're curious and we want to know who you are and understand you. So, Lord, I ask again that we as a people ask in agreement that you would supernaturally, miraculously shed more wisdom, more knowledge, more love on your divine nature and who you are. Let this topic not be one that we leave behind, but we come back to over and over, consciously or subconsciously. And Lord, tonight we offer you three persons in one, due praise and honor, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. That's it.